Awesome. Well, good morning, everyone. Hi. Just in case you missed it, for whatever reason, uh, my name is Tanner, and I'm here and I'm pumped to be speaking to you all this morning. Um, Just like you said, I just graduated this last May from Manhattan Christian College in Manhattan, Kansas, um, and then just really felt the Lord calling me back here, which is crazy. Yeah. Degree. Yeah. I did it. But it's cool, and I came back, um, and, and I was really, really excited to come and con- to continue to do ministry um, with this community, um, and it's, it's been crazy, and life has just been super, super crazy, and like most importantly over everything, like I'm, I'm getting married, uh, to my fiance Kendall, in 13 and a half days, so not busy at all, right? No, I, it's been crazy and hectic, and, and Kendall has been accepted to, to a, a physical therapy school called George Fox um, University up on the south, just south of Portland. So we are heading up to an incredibly weird place, and I'm pumped, right? So we're, we're really, really excited for this, this just crazy and awesome time in life that we have right now. Um, but here's the thing. As I was really dwelling and, like, wrestling with, with what in the world uh, I'm going to have for you this morning and, and, and what I wanted to share with you and whether it was going to be experiences throughout this, this year or whatever it was, I really just think the best ending to my time here at Pikes Peak is just to spend some time in God's Word with you all this morning. Um, so that is what we were going to do together. So I invite you all, if you have your Bibles, if you need to turn on your Bible, whatever it is, um, we're going to meet together in Luke chapter 23 this morning. Now I'm really, really excited to start off uh, this series that's going to go into Easter um, called Once and For All. And, and here's the thing, I'm, I, I'm so excited about this because it's the week before Easter, um, which is just so fun for me. Uh, and it's really challenging at the same time because I think historically, just historically speaking, from my own experience, the week before Easter um, hasn't been the most like exciting uh, sermon in the world. Like in my experience, a lot of the times we would go into sometimes even graphic detail of Jesus' death and why I was bad and how we had to die, he had to die for, for me. And I, I don't, like, you don't usually leave feeling good after that. It's not most the cheerful sermon in the world. And what we're going to go through this morning, we're really going to find out that that's just, just half-truths in there. Not full truths at all, and there's so, so much more to what Jesus did, and we're going to dig through that this morning. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 23, and as a church body, it's been really, really cool that all of us, um, a majority of us have been, have been going through Luke at a very slow pace through daily devotion together as a community, and I think that's awesome, really just dwelling into what Luke has for us. So I want to catch us up. I just want to catch us up on where we're going to meet together in Luke this morning and really kind of just briefly go through uh, Luke together um, as we just recap what we've been going through, right? So Luke, of course, is just this incredibly author who was absolutely fascinated by the life of Jesus. So he did such an just intense study on his life. He wanted to know everything about Jesus. And this is a letter of what he's found. And it's amazing, Right? So we find in Luke, in the very beginning, right away, there is a ton of hype. There is a coming Messiah King, and everyone is pumped about it. Right? It's really exciting. There's a lot of hype. You're waiting for the moment. And as you quickly, quickly find, as you go into Luke, that the coming Messiah King is not at all what you expect. There is a lot of hype for Jesus' coming. And then he has this very weird, kind of smelly and, and nasty introduction. 
into our world. Where, you know, he was placed in a, a smelly, nasty feeding trough, and the first people who visited him were smelly, nasty shepherds, right? You're reading this, and you're like, this doesn't feel like what I expected at all for the coming Messiah King to be here. This doesn't make sense. This feels very backwards with what I would think a coming king would be. And that's the point. Man, Luke illustrates it beautifully. That's the point, right? So then you fast forward like 30 years. Jesus has now started his ministry, okay? And Jesus is living this incredibly radical life that really hasn't been seen before, right? Where his ministry is now bringing the good news to to the sick, to the poor, to the women, to the children, to the tax collectors, to the oppressed, those of like the lowest social status at the time, That's who Jesus was bringing the good news to. He was showing love to those who were not seeing love anywhere else. No one else was giving love to. That's who he came. He came forward and he started preaching this good news. And it it was radical. He was living this radical way of life. And to prove that point even more, he then gathers a small group of 12 men to follow him. Who, let's be honest, had no business like being friends. Like, they had no business getting along or, like, like, being a community together. But it's Jesus, right? So Jesus taught them to love, to love each other and to love others and to be a community despite their differences. And he's living this, this radical way of life. And now this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he's not performing miracles, forgiving people of their sins, healing people. It's crazy. Jesus is doing awesome stuff, and he continues to do things that we just don't expect the coming Messiah King to be doing. So Jesus and his followers, his 12 disciples, are are now collecting quite a following, right? They're now affecting thousands of lives who who have an interaction with Jesus and are never the same again, right? They're changing so many lives, and people are just falling in love with this guy, right? Except one group, and there's a group called the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders at the time. Um, they were not fans. They were not pumped. They were not completely just fallen for this guy named Jesus. Now, the religious leaders at the time were really, really comfortable just living their religious rule-based life without the response of love that should be coming from that. And Jesus came, and he was challenging that, and they didn't like it. They didn't like it at all. So they started to develop a plan to kill Jesus. And if you're reading this for the first time, you're thinking these Pharisees were just made to look like fools, right? All before this. And they're like, all right, we're going to kill Jesus. And you want to laugh at him. And you're like, you're not going to do that, right? So they plan to capture him and to, to, to sentence him to death. And they succeed. It's crazy, but they end up capturing Jesus They end up sentencing this sinless and pure man to death. They then beat him, then they throw a cross on his back, and they send him up the hill. And if you're reading this for the first time, or even if you're there, if you're experiencing this, you're waiting for the moment for him to just save himself. You're waiting for that moment where Jesus just throws down the cross and, like, just rebukes everyone, and, like, you're waiting for the lightning to strike or something. I don't know. It doesn't make sense why he's just letting all of this happen. You're waiting for that moment, right? So this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 23, and we're going to meet together in verse 32. So as we go into verse 32, he's going up the hill, right? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. 
and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, I'm going to pause. I'm going to pause right there. Okay? Because now he's, now he's there. He, he didn't save himself. Now he's crucified and he's up there. He is on the cross. And again, if you're reading this for the first time or you're even there, you're still waiting for that moment. You're like, Jesus, you're running out of time. Right? You're waiting for that moment. You're waiting for, like, for the lightning to strike and for him to like, step off the cross and to rebuke everyone and then like, drop his nails like he drops a mic after delivering a sick burn. Okay? You're waiting for like, something awesome to happen. There's not a lot of time left. Right? And, like, and he's about to say something. It's going to be really cool. So he goes. Like, Jesus is opening his mouth. He's talking. Here it is. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What? He said, forgive them? After all of this, he said, forgive them. Surely there's more. Surely that's not it, right? Surely that's not actually what's going what's gonna to happen, right? Okay, maybe he forgives them, and then he, like, steps off the cross and does his thing, right? And then he saves himself and just forgives them with that, right? And if you're there and you're thinking that, you're not the only one, right? If we meet back together in verse 35, you're not the only one. It says, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, Say, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. But he stayed. He stayed on that cross, and he died. And for us to understand this, for us to be truly restored in our life, Jesus had to make this atoning sacrifice for us. How are we doing? We doing good? This is heavy stuff this morning, and I get it. It's the week before Easter. It's Jesus' death. I understand this, and it's heavy. But I want us to completely uh, just dig into this concept this morning of atonement. And understand what atonement really means and what it is and what it does for us, right? So we're, we're going to dig into that this morning because to understand atonement is to really understand Jesus' death. So to understand atonement, I, I love stories. I can't help it. To understand where Jesus' death happens in this story, where that takes place, where atonement takes place in that, you have to understand where that takes place in this. In this whole story, you need to understand where this takes place in God's grand narrative through it all. So we go to the beginning. Go to the beginning of the book. You don't have to turn there, but we're going to go to the beginning of the book, right? And there's God. And God brilliantly and lovingly creates all of this. And it's amazing. And he wants to share the beauty of his creation with creatures. And most importantly, us. Right? We were the ones made in God's image. We were the ones chosen to oversee and to care for everything that he made. And to live in a perfect relationship with him. He set up something amazing. And he gave us a task. What did we do with the place? How did we do? We made it to page two. We didn't do very well. That was, that was not very, it's sad, right? We made it to page two. We started introducing death and ruin and sin into this world through our very just bad relationships and our own sinful desires. We introduced Death and sin and ruin. So now you have to ask yourself, what is God doing? What is his response to this? What is God doing about all this evil and this sin and this death and destruction in the world? What is his response? 
atonement. Atonement is his response. And atonement goes much more than just simply forgiving someone, right? That's why Jesus couldn't say, Father, forgive them, and then step off, right? Atonement is much more than just forgiving someone, but if I were going to look at like an English phrase to actually cover what that is, it would be to cover, or, or even like to take up, right? A better way to describe atonement is to cover or to take up. And here's why. I'm going to illustrate that for you real quick, okay? And this is a fun illustration. I get it, but it's about food, and I love it. So let's say you and I after this, right? We go get some coffee or we go get some lunch. And like the coffee and lunch in Colorado Springs, first of all, I've been here for 11 months, but I understand how special it is. Like if you are not branching out and doing that, go after this and try somewhere new. But anyway, we are, we are getting coffee and getting lunch, okay? And we're having a good time. And we're eating together, and we're drinking our coffee, and then I reach down and I realize I, I forgot my wallet, which isn't a good thing, right? And you, I'm sure, look at me and are thinking, like, who is this, right? Are you kidding me? He forgot his wallet. I'm sure he did this on purpose. I know he's been an intern for the past 11 months. I know he doesn't have any money in that wallet anyway, right? I'm sure he did it on purpose, okay? But you don't think that. You hold it in, okay? You hold that thought in, and then you show compassion, you show grace, and you forgive me. And that's that's great. I really, really appreciate that. And then the waiter or waitress comes around with the check, and you look at her and you go, and you go, listen, listen, uh, my friend here, a little absent-minded today, um, doesn't have a lot of money anyway, but he's forgotten his wallet. But it's okay. I forgave him. The server's going to say, that's awesome. Here's the check. (laughs) Still got to pay that, right? Here's the check. Someone has got to do that. I failed in the relationship right there. In our relationship, I failed. Really big fail? No, not a big one, but I failed, right? And and, and there is now a cost that has to be covered, that has to be taken up. My failure is now to be taken up because, because of that, right? It's a big deal. But what if I kept on doing that? What if every single week we got together and every single week I would forget my wallet and you would just think that I am selfish and just want to mooch off of you and that I'm not a good friend, right? And I would just start destroying and breaking down our relationship together. It wouldn't be good. That's why through this concept of atonement, it's not just forgiving, but there has to be a resolution in there somewhere. So atonement does two pretty big things for us, right? I mean, it it shows pretty big things, right? Right? Atonement has to include covering the initial cost. That first cost has to be covered, okay? But that's not it by itself. It also has to restore the relationship. Atonement has to cover the cost, and atonement has to restore the relationship, the damaged relationship, right? And you read on early in the New Testament, and people have failed, and they're continuing to fail, So God sets apart this plan to be able to save these people, right? To to get rid of the evil and the sin in the world, but save them. God devises this plan to rid the world of evil without actually ridding the world of the people doing the evil. And it's beautiful. And and he starts this off, and it's, it's, it's crazy, right? Because that is what really covers the initial cost. And then we're soon, pretty soon, we're soon gonna look into that what restores the relationship. It's the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus that restores that relationship. It's both parts. And we're going to look at that really quick. But here's the thing. We're going to take a break. 
Okay, we're going to take a break from me talking for just a minute, okay? Because we're actually going to watch a video right now by our friends at The Bible Project. Now, The Bible Project was started by two guys, Tim Mackey and John Collins, who are two just brilliant and artistic minds who put together this huge website just filled of animated videos uh, explaining whole books and themes throughout Scripture and where it lies in God's grand narrative. Uh, so these guys are awesome. And Tim even is a lot of the study that we're doing on Atonement this morning. A lot of that comes from Tim, even. And these are just two brilliant guys. And we're going to see this morning what they have to say. So everyone, look up. We're going to watch a video. We all long for the world to be good, for people to live in peace, act with love and justice. But there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead. And we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. Therefore, you know, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and and we keep doing it. So this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. So how is he going to do that? Well, early in the story of the Bible, we're introduced to this practice of animal sacrifice, which I know, it seems weird to us, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world. I should be removed. But God is allowing this animal's life to be a substitute. It's symbolically dying in my place. And the biblical word for this is atonement, which means to cover over someone's death. But there's a second part to this ritual. Remember, evil also causes this relational vandalism. And in the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. So the priest would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple. So the animal's blood is cleaning things? Well, remember, this is a symbol, and it's a symbol that we're not used to. The blood represents life. And the sprinkling of the blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away these indirect consequences of evil in their community. In the Bible, this process is called purification. And so the temple and the land now become a clean space where God and his people can live together in peace. So this ritual makes things right between Israel and God. And more than that, the Israelites experience God's love and his grace through these symbols. And by being forgiven, ideally, this would compel them to become people of love and grace too. Right, that's the ideal, but it wasn't always happening. Right. So the prophet Isaiah, for example, he talks a lot about this. He opens his book by saying that the continual sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless because they were also allowing great evil in their midst, ignoring the poor and the oppressed. Even the Israelite kings were distorting justice. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when a new king from the line of David would come and deal with evil, but in a surprising way. The king would become a servant. 
and not just serve, but also suffer and die for the evil committed by his own people. And his life would be offered as a sacrifice. This is the promise Jesus believed he was fulfilling. He's the king of Israel suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he said that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to his sacrifice of atonement. And so all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. It covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in this world. But the New Testament authors also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification. And so we hear about Jesus' blood as a symbol of his life, having this ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us so we can now live at peace with God. So that's the meaning behind Jesus' death. But there's more to the story. Yeah, the New Testament makes this powerful claim that Jesus' death was not final. He rose from the dead. And so he's the sacrifice who broke the power of death and evil, which means that he lives on to offer his life to anyone who will accept it. He is the perfect sacrifice to which all the previous sacrifices were pointing all along. So because of Jesus, the early Christians stopped participating in the ritual of animal sacrifice. But they were given new rituals. There are two that Jesus taught his followers to perform. The first is called baptism. Just as Jesus died, so going into the water becomes this personal connection you now have to his death. And in coming out of the water, you, so to speak, come back to life with Jesus. So baptism is the sacred ritual that joins your story to Jesus' death and his resurrection. The second ritual is called the Lord's Supper which is a reenactment of Jesus' last meal with his disciples. And he used bread and wine to portray his coming death as a sacrifice. And so now, followers of Jesus, they take the bread and the cup regularly to remember and to participate in the power of Jesus' death and in his life. So these rituals, they remind us of God's love and encourage us to live a life of love and grace. But they do more than that. They connect us to a new life source— The very power that brought Jesus back from the dead, it's the same power that can deal with the evil in our own lives and transform us into people who lead lives of love and peace. So this tells us two things. This tells us two things about our lives. One, the stakes are high. The stakes of our sins and our failures are very high. They introduce death into this world. But here's the other thing it teaches us, because that's not just it. It teaches us that God loves us, and he is not giving up on us. He loves you. He's not giving up on you despite whatever it is in your life. He is refusing to give up on you. Does he have the right? Does he have the right to give up on you? I mean, do you have the right to give up on me when I forget my wallet in the restaurant and you leave me with an incredibly awkward situation with a server? Yeah, you do. Does, G- does God have the right? A little bit. Partially, yes. We don't deserve any of this. But he doesn't. Because he made a promise. He made a promise to us that instead of completely wiping us out and giving, us, giving up on us, he made a promise to heal and restore and save and redeem us. He made a promise, and he is not giving up on us. Now, 
it can be really easy to look into this story and to read a different story, right? It's actually really, really easy for us to look into this story and actually read some stories and almost into like uh, uh, old Greek and some pagan religions and gods and read that story, which those gods were no morally better than humans anyway, right? So we look into this story, and we see that we offend these gods in some way, shape, or form, and they're angry at us, and they're going to kill us. So we have to offer a sacrifice and give them their, their flesh so that they don't kill us. So now that they have their flesh, they go and they leave us alone. So we somehow take this story, and we try to put it into ours, and then we introduce Jesus into it, and we make, and we make this story that's just, it's not there. And it's not all the way true. It's so far from it. But here's the thing. We make this story that says God is perfect and pure and holy, and you are not. And because of that, you have to die. But instead of taking his anger out on you, he instead takes all of his anger out on Jesus and kills him so that you can go to the good place instead of the bad place, and we could sing praises forever and ever to the God who didn't kill you. Which is kind of a bummer, kind of a downer on your day a little bit, right? Because that's so far from it. It's not it. If we pay attention to the gospel, if we pay attention to all of the Old and all of the New Testament, you will read and you will see and you will discover a God that's not that. You will discover a God that loves you and is not giving up on you. No matter what you do, no matter where you are in life, no matter what, this God He is not giving up on you. Now our sin and our failures, they create death into this world. I get that. But then we introduce Jesus into the picture. And it's so so beautiful. Jesus came to be the human that we were all created and called to be, all failed to be. And he died. And he died for us, absorbing into himself all of the effect and all of the consequences and all of the evil that we have released into this world. And we participated in it. We're all at fault there. But he's going to take it into himself and absorb it, and he's going to conquer it. And he's going to conquer it with his love and his resurrected life. Guys, this changes everything. No no matter where you are in life, no matter what you're doing, no matter what sin you have in your life, Jesus is there, and he has covered for you, and he's covering you with love, and he is fighting for you. He is battling for you, and he is not giving up on you because he loves you. If there's anything I want you to take away when you walk out out of these doors, God loves you. And I want you to know that. This process of atonement isn't from an angry and vengeful God, but it's from a God who loves you and refuses to give up on you. And this changes everything. There's a quote by a pastor in Kansas City named Zach Anderson that I love, and I've used it a ton of times, but I don't care, because I love it. Zach says this. He says, Jesus is everything to everyone. If you're an astronomer, he's the bright morning star. If you're a baker, he's the bread that comes from heaven. If you're a carpenter, he's the door. If you're a doctor, he's the great physician. If you're an electrician, he's the light of the world. If you're a farmer, he's the kernel of wheat that fell to the ground and died. If you're a geologist, he's the rock of ages. If you're a lawyer, he's our advocate with the Father. 
If you're a ruler, he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. If you're a mortician, he's the resurrected of the dead. If you're an optometrist, he's the one who made the blind man see. If you're a psychologist, he's our wonderful counselor. If you're an engineer, he's the chief cornerstone. If you're a photographer, he's the image of the invisible God. If you're a philosopher, he's the truth. If you're a traveler, he's the way. He is Jesus. And he is everything to everyone, no matter where you are in your life and what you're doing. He loves you. He is Jesus. And because we have been surrounded by this love and been covered by him, we now have a love that we can give others that we didn't have before. We now have that love inside of us, and that changes how we do everything. That, that changes how we interact with our students and with our kids and how we treat them. That changes how we go home and love and serve our spouse. That changes how we interact and what we do and how we view our relationships and friendships in our lives. That changes how we respond when we walk by the homeless man on the side of the road and avoid eye contact. This changes our mindsets when we get together on a Sunday morning as a community. This changes us, this love that he has given us and has covered us and has taken up our failures for us. This changes everything because he loves us and he loves you. How do we know? How do we know that there is a God in this universe that is so utterly in love with you and wants to restore everything in your life? How do we know? if we read through scriptures, you're going you're gonna to quickly see that it's not because of the, the warm feelings that we get because of God in these moments. It's, it's not, because of, not because of that. But if you look into the historical event of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, and you look into that and you dig into that, you will see that God loves you because he covered for you. 